Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Living in a diet culture is very confusing and leaves many of us frustrated. Having disordered eating is incredibly common and it can be difficult to navigate among the different conditions and terminology and understanding our relationship with food and our bodies. Luckily, I had the pleasure to talk to Dr. Sophie Edwards, who's a health psychologist and works with helping clients getting a good relationship with food and their bodies. In this episode, she helps us understand various clinical conditions, as well as providing tools to use to cope with negative body image, and how to start eating intuitively. We also discuss fatphobia within the health sector, fatphobia during lockdown, and talk about the importance of letting yourself eat chocolate and lentils and everything in between. If you haven't come across my podcast before, there's plenty of episodes to listen to, where I've interviewed many wise women about their relationship with their bodies. Please make sure to hit subscribe and review my content, as it helps others to find me. My name is Fanny Beckman, and this is Women of My Generation. Sophie, how are you today? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Pretty relaxed this morning. Yeah, good. It's Saturday when we record this, so it's quite nice to... I mean, it's not that much of a difference for me being a freelance photographer, uh, so the weekend is not that much of a difference for the everyday kind of lives otherwise. Yeah, well, I think at the moment all the days are blending together because of lockdown anyway, so it's... uh... Feels a bit like that time between Christmas and New Year, but all the time at yeah. the moment. <laughs> yeah, true. But you said you had a pretty busy week behind you, anyway. Yeah, it's been quite busy. Um, mm. Yeah, because you're you're a um, health psychologist. Um, but, that's what you do from day to day, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, health psychologist. And I've never actually come across that term before. So could you just please explain what you do on a day-to-day basis and you know what's kind of the difference between your role and a dietitian for example? Okay, yeah. So a health psychologist it is it's a fairly new strand of psychology. Um the w- more traditional ones that people have heard of are things like clinical psychologists who deal specifically with mental health um and diagnosable mental health conditions. Um, Health psychology is really interested in bridging the gap between physical and mental health. So, yeah, it looks at things like long-term health conditions and their impact on um, mental health. 
also things like behaviour change. So looking at why we do things that we know are not very good for us. Uh, it it kind of has come out of various different um, aspects of health. So it looks at things like why we choose not to do things like screening programmes, why so many women don't go for cervical screenings, for example, or, or mm. things like that. So, yeah, it's really getting behind into the mindset of... Um, of physical health really but also looking at social the social aspects of health as well which are quite often forgotten so it's quite a broad term then so it's not just about like uh, diets and food related is anything no it's really broad yeah so um health psychologists work in various different different fields i've got a colleague who works in a, a fertility clinic for example um, her role is really interesting. So looking at some of the psychological aspects for for people going to fertility treatment, which, uh, as you can imagine, is quite quite broad. Um, yeah, yeah. Her role always fascinates me, um, and that's that's fairly new and forward thinking actually, um, because a lot of fertility treatments traditionally have been seen from a purely medical model. Um, so yeah, and, until now it was sort of if you've got someone who wants to get pregnant, you get pregnant and send them away, and and that's job done. Whereas there are so many issues, you know, some couples uh, can't get pregnant not because of fertility issues, but because of um, issues to do with intimacy and and inability to actually uh, be intimate with each other. And so obviously that's got a huge psychological and social aspect to it so yeah she works sort of working on those aspects of it okay and what what kind of clients do you have in your work um so my work does focus more on the food um aspect of things so i work with people who struggle with their relationship with food um majority of my of clients i see are women um because of the way mm. women are targeted by diet culture. Um, but I do see men as well. So I work with people with disordered eating patterns, people who have done a lot of yo-yo dieting, people with body image issues, um, and and um, also issues with exercise, people who are compulsive exercisers, things like that. Mm. Yeah, I'm always interested to, you know, uh, what you said, that it's mainly women that come to you. Do you think that is because, like you said, women are more targeted in the diet culture? Uh, could it also be something to do with, like, men showing vulnerability that they don't seek help for these kind of things? Yeah, so, I mean, definitely, I think women are more targeted by, by diet culture. Um, and... I think the role of men and women in society, it, it, they're, they're very different, as we know. You know, men are mm. expected to be a certain way, the kind of breadwinner, um, things like that, whereas women, a lot of their value is is based upon what they look like. Um, and it's so um, entrenched in our society that a, a, a lot of the way women even bond and interact with each other is about diets and about dieting you you hear it a lot a lot of small talks around what diet are you on um yeah what did you have for lunch uh, things like that so it's it's really really entrenched in 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 everything and the beauty standards we're shown you know 
are always slim, beautiful, able-bodied white women and um, it's just the, the, the norm that we're, we're always trying to aspire to be. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, beauty standards have changed throughout history, but it's like you said, it's it's always like very exclusive. It leaves so many people uh, behind and everyone's kind of pushed into the same narrow norm, which leads to more um, eating disorders. Well, absolutely. And it, it has such a wide impact, you know, beyond even the, so there's the diet aspect of it, which... Um, I will talk a lot more about I'm sure but there's the other issues with body image we're not we're not we're not shown diverse bodies and it can lead to a lot of shame in a lot of women about their body which can have a knock-on effect on for things like physical health um, you know I said earlier about health psychology being being interested in why say women don't go for cervical screenings and uh, a really widely reported um, reason is because they've got embarrassment about the way they look, um, which again can be traced back to a lack of diversity in, well, things like pornography and things that we're shown yeah. that that people have this belief that a woman's body should look a certain way and if it deviates at all, there's something wrong or shameful about them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned that you are able to work from home, but otherwise, where can people find you? Um, well, I, I do some one-to-one -one work. I'm based in Essex, um, so I do do face-to-face -face work as well. Um, mm. And um, group work sometimes as well, which is, is, uh, is quite important because I think a lot of the time people don't don't talk about these things or it's just so accepted that the, the way we think about food and our bodies that we we don't question it um, so people have usually people start dieting from such a young age and I think women as well a lot of a lot of the people I work with they first pick up on diet culture from listening to their their parents or you know quite often their mums talking about about diets and dieting yeah, definitely. Like this, women of my generation is also a photography project that started in January last year. So I've been doing it for quite a long time, and that's one of the main things that I've noticed how common it is for parents to project their own eating disorders onto their their children. And I didn't realise how common that was because it's so stigmatised until I did this project. But it's just like you said, it's so so common. Absolutely, and it's it's even things that we we do that parents do in a really well-meaning way. Um, mm. So I work with a lot of um, intuitive eating tools, and if we think about really young children, I mean, intuitive eating is sort of about listening and trusting your yourself and your body to to eat what you want, and um, you know having that trust that you you can eat what giving yourself permission to eat any foods at any time yeah. children are extremely good at doing this if you look at toddlers they will eat a bit of food and then they will run off and play and they they'll eat when they're hungry they'll stop when they're full they really self-regulate um if you give a child like a plate of all different foods like a little bit of sandwich some carrot sticks a biscuit 
they'll tend to have a few bites of each thing and then run off and, and carry on playing and maybe come back a bit later. But we, we actively teach children to start ignoring that. Um, and it often comes out of such well-meaning places because we want them to have a nutritious diet. So not letting kids leave the table until they've finished all their vegetables. Um, giving children snacks when they come home from school because they're really hungry but then serving dinner half an hour later and being surprised that they're not hungry so really teaching them not to trust their own signals but to eat almost on demand you know labeling some foods good and bad giving children food as a reward and it can be so subtle I was uh, with my brother and sister-in-law and my little nephew got a a splinter in his foot and my brother had to pull it out with some tweezers and whilst my nephew was whilst my brother was pulling it out they they gave him a lollipop and said oh have the lollipop and you won't even notice the pain and it's such an innocent thing to do but that's really sending a message that you know food takes away pain um which is a big setup for emotional eating and um things like that later on in life oh, so yeah. absolutely that feeling that we can't trust children and we can't trust ourselves to eat sensibly is mm. yeah a really big factor in this yeah and I'm just curious like why did you choose this career path and have you like struggled yourself previously um I mean I think every woman has struggled with the uh, body image and food just because of the the culture we we are existing in i've i've not struggled um to a huge extent i did i've, I've struggled with other things during my life um when i was much younger i i struggled with some uh, alcohol and drug issues when i was very young and when i came out of that in my early 20s Using things like exercise really, really showed me what a massive impact physical health had on your mental health. So, you know, things like exercise, eating healthily and actually looking after yourself physically really improved my mental health quite significantly. And I wanted to go in and help other people find that. So I actually became a personal trainer in my early 20s. Um, okay. Yeah, and then got sucked into the fitness industry, which is rife with diet culture and, you know, compulsive exercising, really um, having to look a certain way. And I, I never, I never settled in that that world. Really, I, I, um, it wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't for me quite early on, but I was still really, really interested in that area. So I, I'd done a, my degree had been in psychology so I went back and did a master's in health psychology as I'd heard that it was about that that link between mental and physical health um, and then just really really enjoyed it I went I went into drug and alcohol services for a time after that but then I yeah I moved into the eating side of things and did did the doctorate became a qualified psychologist and went from there um, but yeah, I've, I've just always been really, really interested in that link um, and the broader aspects of health. We're so obsessed, I think, with a very narrow view of what healthy is, you know, in terms of yeah. weight, especially we're 
so obsessed that that weight is the be all and end all of health and it really really impacts people who have got larger bodies the way they access health care and I'm, it's something I'm really passionate about um, that area as well there's um, a sort of movement called health at every size which was started uh, because of this, this, um, this failing really in the healthcare system. So a lot of people who have got larger bodies, they'll go to their GP for you know anything really. I've I've heard my clients go to the GP because they've uh, had someone who'd been in a car accident and had shattered their hip, and six months later, it was still being it was still really sore uh, she went to her doctor to ask for a, a referral to the physiotherapist and was told that she needed to lose weight um, and that was the reason her hip was hurting despite the fact that she'd clearly been in a car accident and it's um, it's just such a massive barrier to people accessing the right health care um, you know, I often tell my clients to say to their doctor, what advice would you give to, to me if I was slim? And sometimes that's the only way they can get, get real good advice out there. GPs are far less likely to refer into other services for people who are larger. People with large bodies are, find it harder to access things like pain management. Um, you know, there's all sorts of services out there that they're they're just not getting referred into because they're told just a blanket lose weight and and it will go away. Yeah, I mean, I've had um, my close friend Sophia in this podcast as well, and she said exactly this and how how it kind of put her off to go and see doctors because she knew that they would treat her like that, and there was like fat phobia within the the industry. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it's something we don't consider as well when we're looking at um, the health consequences of having a larger body. Um, it's not something that's controlled for the, the fact that people with larger bodies avoid actively avoid going to their GP because of the fat phobia they experience. So when they're diagnosed with, with certain conditions, it's probably going to be at a later stage. And it, it's something that's not considered when we're looking at the health consequences, um, which is just, yeah, it's, it's really, it's not right. And it's something that I'm yeah really passionate about changing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all experience quite a lot of uh, it right now. We can see in like social media during the lockdown that fat phobia seems to actually have increased um, and there's loads even more um, ads about how to lose weight and keeping fit uh, which is so ironic when we are in the middle of a pandemic and people still think about how they look even though uh, we have other things to to think about uh, so sorry what oh no say? absolutely and I, there's been a lot um shared as well on about the um, obviously, I've, uh, BMI is what they use to measure weight, and I've got a huge issue with BMI. It's not something that should be used um, on an individual level. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is. But um, there's been a lot shared I've seen on social media saying about how two thirds of the people in who are in intensive care for COVID are at overweight and obese BMI categories, which it's so misleading because, I mean, it, it, it's true, but 
two thirds of the population are in those categories. So it's being used as sort of a, a fat phobic, stigmatizing, you know, way of saying, trying to make out that it that BMI in of itself is a risk factor when actually it's just reflecting what the population is. Um, there are certain health conditions that do put people at risk, um, obviously, of having worse complications. But BMI at this point in time hasn't been found to independently be a risk factor, yet it's still being pushed that it is. Yeah. No, I think there are more and more people raising their voices and saying that, like you said, it shouldn't be applied to individuals at all. Oh, no. Um, but Yeah, but during this lockdown, how do you notice that more people turn to you and seek help? Do you know, it's been, um, it's been really interesting because there has been a big pressure um, to... I don't think it's just about the, the dieting aspect of it. There's been so much about getting fit and um, but also being productive in general. There's been a huge, yeah. yeah, it seems like people are competing as to who can do lockdown best, who can come out with the most things ticked off their to-do list. Um, and there is a big, big pressure. But also I found that there's been a, big kickback to that as well and people are really coming together to support each other I've, I've been part of a few online groups to to support each other um through this and people are reaching out more which is really nice so yeah I think there has been a big um there is a lot of pressure but I think it's actually bringing people together people are communicating more ironically mm -hmm. Um, than they have been maybe before. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have. Um, I mean, I'm video calling so many more of my friends now than I usually do. Um, but do you have like any, you said that you turn to different Facebook groups. Do you have any examples of how, where people can turn to and how we can deal with these kind of toxic thinking patterns? Um, yeah, I mean, people can... Uh, inquire visit my my website which is uh, dr sophie edwards anatomy of an ad subconsciously trigger emotions through music perfect define an opportunity imagine talking to millions of people across the u.s like i am now identify a problem creating an audio ad is time consuming offer a solution utilize cutting edge ai imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds well we did to create this ad to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the US like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Oh, is it .co.uk or .com? Sorry. <laughs> 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 I'll find out. Um, and um, absolutely make an inquiry. Um, I've, I've got some groups that I can give people access to. Um, so there are some really good support, support groups out there. I think if people are really experiencing what they think might be 
uh, eating disorder disorders um there are some really good resources out there as well beat the charities uh, an excellent eating disorder service and they run a lot of peer support groups um all over the place which is is really really good um so there is a lot a lot of a lot of places that you can go to but i think there's there's a distinction obviously between having an eating disorder and disordered eating could you just Tell us what the difference is, because I've never really understood the clinical difference. Well, I mean, eating disorders have um, a set of defined criteria. So there's there's a couple of different... Um, the World Health Organization has a, a set of criteria for certain ones, so things like bulimia, anorexia. And if you hit a certain number of these criteria, which are things like um, restricting energy intake, significant weight loss, things like that, and if you hit a certain number of them, you can be diagnosed with, with an eating disorder. Um, but then there are disordered eating patterns that might not hit the criteria for a clinical eating disorder, but are still you know, significant the problem is they're quite normalised in our society. So yeah. um, people can have disordered eating patterns without knowing it. So things like um, chaotic eating patterns, so restriction then binging, which is so, so common. And it's really perpetuated by that dieting. You know, we say you know we're going to start, I don't know, the keto diet or the Atkins or whatever and get restrict all carbohydrates um, and then obviously over time we start craving carbohydrates it might work well for a little while we might be losing weight if that's well that would be the goal but after a while we can't carry it on and so so we binge um, on carbohydrates and it's just a reaction to that that restriction um, yeah but that absolutely is a disordered eating pattern but it's one that's so normalized that you know, I've, I've had so many clients who say that they join commercial slimming clubs and everyone the day before weigh-in will completely starve themselves. And then after weigh-in, they'll all go out for a Chinese together and eat as much as they can. And it's just part of the part of the deal. That's what they do when they're on a diet. But that's, you know, really disordered. Yeah, it is. And I think the problem with um, the different criteria with eating disorders is that it's very focused on um, the physical aspects, but obviously yeah. eating disorders is so much about your mental state of mind as well. So I've had um, a few guests in this uh, podcast saying that they were, um, they were like told that they were well again and that they didn't have a eating disorder anymore but still they struggled uh, because they had you know gained weight or anything or something like that but uh, still they struggled uh, with their relationship to food mm. anyway absolutely and i think that's such a common um misconception so we've got really predefined um perceptions of what an eating disorder looks like so and again that's that's not helped by the media so we think of things like um anorexia and you know, all most films and portrayals, it's always a very, very, very slim, usually white teenage, usually 
very beautiful girl and that's that's um that's the kind of perception of what an eating disorder looks like um and sadly some eating disorder services have uh, bmi criteria as well one of the services i work at um we work with people with um binge eating disorder but we don't work i don't i don't work with people with things like anorexia or bulimia it's not my my area of speciality so i'd refer people on if i suspect that that's what they're suffering from to to specialist services and i've i've had someone who hadn't eaten pretty much for a month they'd they'd lost a stone and a half in a month they were going to the gym every single day uh, and they'd restricted all food apart from one specific vegetable. Uh, and, and it was absolutely, you know, needed specialist intervention from an eating disorder uh, service. Yeah. But when I tried to refer them in, they, they, had, a, they had a BMI cut off um, and she was over it. And it was just so frustrating. I mean, luckily in that... because. Because I know the healthcare system, I was able to apply for funding for her um, and get her a place. But for people who don't understand the system, who can't advocate for themselves, they're just stuck. They don't. They don't have some anywhere to go with that. So, yeah, it can be really dangerous. Yeah. So in your job, do you mainly meet people who have? disordered eating then yeah i do so i mostly work with people with disordered eating so as i said some of those binge restrict patterns but also things like um emotional eating secret eating things like that that um again are quite normalized in our our society um and you know i want to say emotional eating of itself isn't a bad thing necessarily everyone eats emotionally everyone eats to celebrate uh, food is not just fuel um no yeah exactly you know food reminds us of our family of our you know culture of of all sorts of things you know the smell of food can remind us of of you know different times in our life and and things like that so food is always going to have an emotional element the the only issue with emotional eating is when we're using food to meet um, needs that we have that could be better met by other things. So, you know, if we've if we've exper if someone's experienced trauma and they're using food to push that down and cope with those feelings, when actually, you know, some therapy would would be the right thing for them, or some, you know, or even someone who's using food to cope with stress, where you know, food does is a great distraction. It makes us feel good temporarily, but it, it doesn't meet those needs as well as other things, you know, really reflecting on someone's life. If someone is that highly stressed on other coping strategies, they might need, you know, things like meditation or getting some social support, things like that. Yeah. And I've talked to quite a few people who struggle with binge eating and they, it seems to be a problem when they try to hide when they eat and they eat so much that they get sick um, mm. a couple of times a week or even more than that. So that's kind of warning signs as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting because binge eating itself has quite a, a 
clear definition. I, I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but I think a binge is really, really um, subjective. Um, I think something like it's a it's a very it's a large amount of food in a short space of time. But then I've got other people who I've met who are sort of compulsive grazers. So they they don't binge as such, but they're constantly eating throughout the day and they're also hiding it and feeling shame about it and eating till they're uncomfortably full um and yeah using food uh, to meet another unmet unmet need uh, but then then again I've, I've come across people quite often who would say that they are emotional eaters but actually when you get down to it they're not, they're chronic dieters and because they're constantly restricting food and they're constantly craving food because of that restriction, whenever they do experience uh, an emotion, they're using that, I don't want to say excuse, that sounds really judgmental, but they are, are almost using it as an excuse to eat because that's socially acceptable. Um, we see things like on the television or in films when someone has a breakup, they eat a cup of ice cream or um, yeah. when they experience a, something really stressful, they grab a takeaway and that's sort of seen a bit more as socially acceptable. So someone who's really trying to restrict and actually is really craving food, if they do experience something challenging, you know, that can be their excuse to eat and to, to relieve those cravings, if that makes sense. And when you stop that restriction and work with them over a period of time, that so-called emotional eating doesn't appear anymore because they've stopped restricting. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And before, you also mentioned that um, part of disordered eating is labelling different foods as good or bad. Yeah. And coming from Sweden, I've noticed that there are, like, different differences in in terms of this like for example in Sweden most people there seem to be really scared of sugar mm. that's like a big no-no whereas here in the UK I've noticed there's more fear of carbs and you know when I was traveling in America I noticed that a lot of people mainly talked about fat as a bad type of food and this just proves that the diet culture is a social construction yeah and you obviously specialize in intuitive eating so how can we how, what, what's your advice on how we can have a neutral way of looking at food it takes time I think first of all I think that's really really interesting what you said and it's it's absolutely true each I, I and even within cultures depending on what what subculture someone's brought into they can have a completely different view I've worked with people who are sort of strict vegans um and Sorry, I want to make a distinction between sort of ethical veganism and um, sort of people using plant-based eating as a way of restriction. So they are very, yeah. very different. Um, but people who are using, say, a plant-based diet to try and lose weight and they are really fearful around fat and really fearful of eating things like cheese and, and, and things like that. Whereas you'll get someone, you know, of a similar age from a similar background who's gone down the paleo route and only will eat meat and high fat food so it is fascinating that we in within one culture can simultaneously celebrate and demonize carbs and celebrate and demonize fat um 
and it's really interesting and it's it's interesting because it doesn't seem to be hugely related to actual health outcomes either because there was a fascinating documentary I saw it was years ago now and I think it was called the world's healthiest diet and it was looking at different mm-hmm. diets from around the world and it looked at the kind of top 10 and, and then the, the least healthy 10. And the, the top 10 didn't have a huge amount in common. It was really interesting because there were some, there was, I think, the Scandinavian country on there where they ate a lot of fresh fish. Um, there was an, uh, an African country on there where they ate a huge amount of grain and um, lentils. And then there was um, another country that ate a huge amount of uh, of meat and saturated fats. They were so they had so many differences. Um, yeah. But it was really eye opening just to see that we're trying to find this really this perfect way of eating, this formula for good health, and it doesn't exist. <laughs> it really doesn't exist. So. Um, I think that's one part of it. It's it's letting go of of that perfectionism um, that is rife, you know, on on places like Instagram, all the the fitspo that's out there, and people promoting mm. their way of eating as the holy grail, you know, the perfect way. And we have all these, you know, superfood powders and all of these things. So letting go of that and really accepting that there is no perfect way of eating and actually nutrition is important but it isn't the biggest determinant of health there are other areas of health and that's something I I often work with my clients on is I'll get them sometimes to draw it and a representation of how important each aspect of their health they, they, they think it is and people are really disproportionate in how much they think their weight and their their the food they eat influences their health. Whereas we really minimise things like you know stress management, sleep, good sleep. Yeah. Um, where they're so so important. You know, practicing self care, having good relationships and social support. They're so, so important and they're really minimised and we're really, really hyper-focused on on nutrition. Um, things like exercise as well, which, you know, being active again is, is something that has a massive influence on health, but we've conflated it with dieting and weight loss that a lot of people only exercise when they're actively trying to lose weight, where, you know, we... I really, that's something I will always work with people to just, you know, disassociate exercise and weight loss. And um, I don't know if you heard about the programme that was on the other day about a, uh, on the BBC about a restaurant where they showed people how much exercise they needed to do to burn off. Oh, yeah. I did hear something about that. I didn't... Yeah, I didn't watch it because I didn't want to add to the ratings of it. No, same. But... Mm. It's just, yeah, uh, and having exercise viewed as a punishment for eating is just so unhealthy, where being active for the sake of being active for our mental health, for our physical health is is so important. So, yeah, so starting to move away from trying to find that perfect diet and and to just to get get it 
in proportion to get how nutrition does fit into a healthy lifestyle but it is one component of so many other pieces and so yeah that's the start of it really for me and uh, I ask you know when I work with people I I ask them to put weight loss to the side and that's a really important part of intuitive eating but also um, you know the way I work with people that it's it's impossible to ask someone to let go of that, especially if their kind of whole life's mission up till that point seems to have been to lose weight. But to just put it to the side and start really focusing on on healing their relationship with food. So you, one of the parts of intuitive eating is giving yourself permission to eat, unconditional permission to eat um, any food in any quantities at any time. Um, and people misunderstand that. So people think that intuitive eating might be just this big free-for-all, this kind of constant binge. But um, if you truly give yourself permission to eat in that way, after a while, those foods that you've craved for so long, they start to lose their importance. And, you know, we put certain foods on a pedestal. Chocolate's one. Um, you know, we... It's, it's such a strange food, chocolate, because it's absolutely delicious, but yeah. we, we celebrate it and, you know, there's been so many claims about chocolate that are mostly unsubstantiated about it, you know, it fights cancer, it cures depression, it does this, it does that, yet we're supposed to only eat it in small amounts and when we see advertising about chocolate it's always very slim very sexy women eating it and it's a really confusing relationship we have with food and it's something that we often try and restrict we're also told quite often it's addictive which it's not <laughs> there's been so much research trying to find an addictive uh, component of chocolate and it's never been found um but Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, that was one of my focuses of my um, my doctorate research was looking at the perception of food addiction. And there has been so much research into different foods and they've managed to get uh, rats in experiments to display addictive type behaviour towards food, even, even to the extent of withdrawal symptoms. But they have never been able to do it without... Uh, restricting giving restrictive access so you know if they give they give these rats high sugar high fat foods they'll eat it in normal amounts unless they start restricting the access they starve the rats for sort of 24 hours then give them 20 minutes of unrestricted access then starve them again that's when the rats start to develop these these signs and symptoms which really mimics dieting so yeah so without that, yeah, that's yeah, so similar. Yeah, so yeah, things like chocolate we've put on a pedestal, and um, we've we so people are always trying to restrict it and always craving it. But after a while, having that unrestricted access, of course, over the first sort of few days, weeks, you're probably going to eat more than you normally would. But after a while, it stops being this you know, object of obsession, desire, and just becomes an enjoyable, you know, food that you sometimes eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, that's such a good point. And uh, what was that documentary called again that you'd seen? I, mean, I really want to watch it. 
The World's Healthiest Diet, I think it was called. Okay. Do you have any other tips on what people can watch or go online on Instagram or social media or something to get some good content now in this fat phobia era? Oh, definitely. But there's loads of um, really good people I'd recommend following. So um, Laura Thomas, who's written a book called Just Eat It. Oh yeah, she's brilliant. Amazing book, really, really interesting, really, really good. There's a book called The Fuck It Diet, which is really, really good. The person who mentioned that has completely gone out of my mind. Health at Every Size by Lindo Bacon, really, really good. I read, um, it's called Eat Up by... Um, oh, Ruby. Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. That's a That was amazing as well. Yeah, that's really good. And I thought it was really written in a really accessible way. Um, yeah, definitely. Easily digestible. So that was, yeah, that's really good as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, there are loads of there are loads of um, things coming out and really good places to access some of this stuff. I'd, I'd always say with, if you if people are searching for support, asking, asking for clinicians who um, support health at every size is really important because you want someone who is isn't going to be basically having the goal of weight loss sort mm -hmm. of in the back of their mind if you're looking for support with disordered eating especially it's really important because I think the thing to remember is that that clinicians therapists dietitians have all also been exposed to diet culture and unless you've gone through the work yourself, that that fat phobia is going to come through. And I think it's really, really challenging. As you know, even people who aren't overtly working with someone to lose weight, we can still see weight loss as the goal or weight loss as a marker of success. And you know, don't misunderstand. I mean, I've I have had people who have worked on intuitive eating and and have lost weight. But for me, it's not a marker of success. I think it's you know people who have resolved their relationship with food, who have resolved their relationship with their body. For me, you know, mental well being, all of those things are far far more important. Yeah, yeah, is. And I'm glad there are so many people who are fighting the diet culture and. Um, there's definitely loads of books out there and Instagram accounts that you can check out and I'll link um, I'll put a link in the show notes to your um, website as well so people can contact you if they want to get involved in any of the Facebook groups that you mentioned yeah brilliant um, yeah we covered so much now and I'm so glad that you educated us I feel I feel like hopeful as well that there are so much um, out there that we can all access and especially now in this difficult time. Um, so thank you so much Sophie. Oh, you're welcome. No, it's been lovely uh, talking to you, thanks.
Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.